0: the model was in danger. We had to future-proof it. So it was about embracing this new technology and leading that change. And yes, resistance there was, and you know there will always be.
1: Welcome to Episode 8 of Season 3 of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture, and change. I'm Zoe Ammer,
2: And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we share our conversation with Nicolas Bonnard, CEO of Montreux Jazz Festival Media Ventures, talking about his role in transforming a 50 year old music festival into a digitally transformed experience. This is the second episode we've recorded focused on digital disruption of the music industry after our conversation last time out with Stuart Murphy of the English National Opera. And our next episode will have a musical focus too. On Friday, Zoe and I spoke to our Michael Hendricks, co-author of Two Beats Ahead, what great musical minds teach us about creativity and innovation. One of the books we'll be reviewing in our summer book special. Before we get to the interview with Nick, BBC Click had an interesting piece on music therapy this week, just tying it back to the music thing again. Um, We'll include the link in the show notes, but this was about how technology can help create music prescriptions, exploring how data could be used to create music playlists that one day could perhaps replace painkillers or anxiety medication. And uh, having had my second dose of the vaccine today, I'm wondering what I ought to put on my playlist to get me through the rest of this evening. But Zoe, what caught your eye in the tech news this week?
1: Well, it feels like there's quite a lot on at the moment with a lot of discussion going on about working from home and some interesting developments in those areas. Uh, So the new story that caught my eye today uh, was actually about Bumble, the dating app. Uh, And what they've done is they've actually mandated a paid week off work for their staff to combat burnout and I think this is a really interesting development because I wonder whether we're getting to a point now where people are going to have to just mandate that time off and say look everyone's knackered we need to have a week off just completely reset get offline and then everyone will be able to just regroup and come back to the office or obviously their desk in the spare room with renewed energy what do you think of this story Paul?
2: I think it's great. And I think more and more organisations that actually allow all of their employees to have time off at the same time, the the better. I think that's the only way that it can, can really work because, you know, you know as well as I do, we're having worked in corporate organisations, the biggest fear that you have in going away and taking any time off is what you're going to come back to. So I think mandating it across the board for an organisation is a pretty good move. So I congratulate them. Uh, I think even further down in the article, it just said that they would have a skeleton team on to support the app. So if anyone was having problems with with the app itself, they'd get the support that they needed and that those people would be given uh, their time off at a later date as well. So yeah, I think it's a really good move.
1: And speaking of having uh, really firm boundaries with work, uh, I spotted a great article in Wired a few days ago, which was about when to Zoom and when not to Zoom. And there are some really interesting case studies in there of organisations where they have become very strict about the amount of time staff have on Zoom and also when you should have a Zoom, when you shouldn't be on a video call, and then also some of the conditions in which you have uh, a call or indeed a phone call as well and in particular with video calls whether you have cameras on or off so again speaking about employers putting in place some really clear guidance on how these channels should be used I thought this was another very interesting development around working from home and the expectations that employers have.
2: A bit of suggestion that the zoom fatigue is turning into actual fatigue or well, not not sorry <laughs> zoom fatigue is turning into uh not just fatigue of zoom but fatigue with zoom as an entire platform um i you know i kind of agree i think it's become kind of the default mode hasn't it i mean i know we're recording over zoom now and you know we have done with pretty much every episode of this podcast since we um since we started But I think you do have a choice. And I think I've taken to uh, offering when I have a a new meeting with a potential new client or or someone that I don't know, been suggesting either or uh, that we can speak on Zoom or we can speak on the phone. And apart from the last few days where it's just been constant rain, I think having a phone call and getting your shoes on and going for a walk, uh, whilst talking to someone is quite good and I also like the bit in there about uh, the sort of the nod to the the parents working from home and at the beginning of the pandemic having to homeschool the pressure of having a, a clean and tidy area in your house just so that you're, you're ready to accept a Zoom call seems a bit presumptuous so yeah, I think it's quite
1: sensible, isn't it? Very sensible. Uh, and on a related note, I spotted another new story from Deloitte, actually, uh, a few days ago about how staff working at Deloitte are now going to be able to work wherever they want, even when COVID restrictions are eased and working from home guidance is disbanded. Uh, and I thought this is a really interesting story. I was talking to someone who used to work at Deloitte, actually, back in the day, and they were saying that they wonder whether this is... Is there as a way of giving Deloitte competitive advantage? They have a big graduate scheme as well. And could it be a bit of a hook to attract new bright young talent by showing them the amount of flexibility that's offered in an organization which is renowned for working people quite hard? So again, I thought that was a, a really interesting move. And let's hope we see more of that from city firms.
2: Yeah, they wouldn't like me to say it, but um, when it comes to the uh, the big four, there is a sort of a much of a muchness, isn't there, across the across the piece? So anything that differentiates them, especially with the graduate market, is a winner. And I saw something very similar actually. People saying that if you have the choice between a PwC or an EY or a Deloitte, then Deloitte is an easy option because people want that flexibility. I think there was an article last week as well that backs this up that said that people would be prepared to leave their jobs and move to other organisations that offer uh, a more flexible approach. So, yeah, smart move by Deloitte, but I wouldn't be at all surprised to see uh, other firms in, in that sector moving in exactly the same direction.
1: Absolutely. It'll be really interesting to see how that all pans out. Um, and speaking of which, a final reflection from me on working from home and flexibility is I do wonder whether we're starting to see some working from home versus the office culture wars beginning to play out on Twitter uh, and, of course, other platforms as well. Uh, I noticed that uh, Stephen Botlett uh, of uh, Diary of a CEO podcast fame, who I am normally a very big fan of, posted something quite provocative from a podcast interview that he had done with Mary Portas that was out there on Twitter today about how she was quite opposed to working from home and how she was ideally looking for more balance. And I wonder whether we can hopefully get to a point where we will be able to have a less binary more nuanced discussion about how we can make all these different workspaces whether it's the home whether it's the office more flexible and accessible for everyone because at the moment I feel like it's very much seen as an either or and people are very much either team working from home or or team office
2: yeah I think you're absolutely right and I think also also going back and referencing the um, Deloitte conversation I think they'd also said that their office space was going to become more for uh, client meetings and uh, team collaboration which I think is it makes absolute sense so I think it is more nuanced than that isn't it and I think it's also about the right place for the right task I was literally just downstairs cooking, listening to, to some Blinks because I'm part of a, a Blinkist book reading group, which is slightly ironic. But anyway, I was listening to to that and they were talking about, it was a Cal Newport book and it was all about um, getting in, into the zone for deep work. And I've found... That going and sitting in a cafe, for instance, with the hustle and bustle and the noise of a cafe can be a great place to, to, to go and to think or to read. Whereas I probably need to be at my desk with some of my accoutrements around me to, to get on with um, client work, for instance. I think it's all about horses for courses, isn't it? And And having the flexibility to know that you can do both. I think another interesting thing will be how, particularly in professional services, and we did this uh, a little bit when I, in my time at Grant Thornton, how professional services are setting up office space um, closer to where people live rather than expecting them to commute into um, into cities. You know, making that space available or at least giving employees access to a space that's nearer to home, so that they can either work from home or go and work in a space that's sort of neutral, uh, rather than a, a Deloitte office or a, a company office.
1: Mm, yeah, work near home is a thing now, isn't it?
2: Totally. And why not? Because it, it gives you greater flexibility to do all of the other stuff that takes up time in our in our lives. You know, rushing home from, from the office or rushing home from London on a train, getting in the car and then going straight to the supermarket, all of that sort of stuff. Become much more flexible. And just anecdotally, I'm not sure whether I mentioned this before. I went into London last Monday, and Ooh, as a train left the station, I know, I know, you know, yeah. You know, I just like to flex it all over the place. But I got on the train, and it was fairly. It was quite busy. um It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't over busy. But as we went past the car park, the car park which is normally rammed to the hill full of cars, just had nothing in it at all. So. anecdotal evidence to me suggests that yes people are starting to head back to the office in numbers but not in any great number at all
1: absolutely and it will be interesting to see how whether the announcement yesterday about the slightly more flexible season ticket which as I understand it is not really any cheaper uh changes (laughs) things or or not I suspect I suspect it won't but we will see what happens Yeah, Yeah,
2: it's a good idea, isn't it? I I think some rail uh, lines, I think the I think the train in from St. Albans does this, but um, works on the on the sort of the French underground system where you buy a carnet of ticket. So you buy a, you know, a carnet of 10 tickets, for example at a cut price and you can use them whenever you like uh, whenever you want to and I think some moves towards bringing that kind of thing in, into place I think would be um, would be very welcome but as I said I'm not going in I'm only going in once or twice a month at the moment and that's probably enough for me at the moment.
1: I am here all day for the St Albans Carnet it's a veritable bargain obviously I haven't actually been able to use any of the carnets (laughs) because I haven't been into London since March 2020 everything has been on zoom but I can't wait to get my hands on one of those carnets again and and make the most of it excellent now for our conversation with Nicholas Bonard that we recorded at the beginning of June
2: We're joined today by Nicolas Bonnard, who is a global media executive with 20 years experience of building and monetizing content and brands. Since January 2019, Nick has been CEO of the Montreux Jazz Festival Media Ventures, which is the area of his work that we will explore today. Previously, he was the CEO of Vice Media Group in France and has held senior positions with various global media companies, including Discovery Studios Group, the in-house production, development and content division of Discovery Communications. Nick served as founder and co-president of Screen Opus Limited, a film and content financing company, and spent more than seven years with MTV. So welcome to Starts at the Top, Nick.
0: Thank you. Thank
2: you for having me. You're welcome. So clearly you have a wealth of experience in the world of media, and you're currently working hard to deliver this year's Montreux Jazz Festival. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about the history of the festival? which I remember hearing about first when it was on TV in the 80s and 90s, I think, and a bit about the challenge of putting it on in, in this year of of all mm.
0: years. No, of course. Uh, the Montreux Jazz Festival is probably one of the oldest music festivals in the world. It's over 55 years of age. Uh, it was founded in the late 60s by a man called Claude Nubbs, and it was really an answer to a tourism issue where they needed more tourists to visit this very sleepy town on the lake of Geneva so they came up with this idea of creating a music festival um so that was uh, the instigation of of this and you know 55 years later you have a festival that is still going on you've had legends perform, such as Ray Charles, uh, Miles Davis, uh, B.B. King but also you know Fast forward to uh, the more contemporary artists like Prince, David Bowie. Uh, I say contemporary; they're, they're they're passed away, unfortunately. But you do have people like Louis Capaldi, most recently, Kendrick Lamar. So so it it it, it spanned, you know 50 years, 50 years of music, and it's jazz only in its name today. You know, jazz represents 20, 30 percent of the lineup, but it, it is very, very uh, eclectic in 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 its um, program. And this year of all years, then, so you
2: yes. know, obviously bringing lots of people to a small, relatively small city can cause problems at the best of times. But this year must be a particular challenge. And I know you're just getting going with the announcements of the lineups and everything else this week. So, so how's it all going?
0: <laughs> the, yeah, this this year is particularly uh, difficult because uh, with uh, obviously with, with, with the pandemic, the fact that we had to cancel our event last year, the physical event, we we did something on digital with with uh, programming across our YouTube channels. But this year, uh, we announced the lineup about a month ago, and it's really been a challenge because having to to deal with all the restrictions, but what we've done is we've built a stage on the lake in the middle of the lake that is naturally uh, socially distanced from the audience. Then you've got bleachers where you have an audience of about 600 people, socially distanced, masked, and and then other venues across town, which are much smaller in size, you know, at a normal event, Every year, you had about 300,000 people that came to this festival. You had two weeks of music all day. And today, it's highly condensed, highly reduced, uh, very controlled flow of people, and very, very different uh, from experience. But at least, you know, we're getting out there. We're getting out there, offering this music and these concerts to, to the people, to the partners, to the sponsors. But also, for a lot of musicians, this will be their first concert coming out of the pandemic. So very excited about that as well.
2: Yeah, and how's that been, do you think? I mean, we, we sort of look at anecdotally at the world of, of music and, and musicians. They've had a very, very hard time of it. But Zoe and I have been doing this podcast now since since June last year. And I think in one of our early episodes, we talked about I was going to watch uh, Nick Cave online at, at Alexandra Palace. Zoe, you've attended a couple of online concerts the music world seemed quite quick to adopt these digital channels, which were there already and sort of there in support, I guess, uh, to a certain degree. But what do you make of the the last sort of year eighteen months and the effect it's had on live music and, and the opportunity that might present?
0: I think you know fundamentally, I think uh, live music will never go away because there's a certain emotional. Connection between the musician and the crowd, so that element is probably never going to go away. The digital component probably adds um, a different element on top of that, and that's in terms of reach. And we've seen yeah, everybody's been talking about streaming. We've you know audio, video streaming, um, and there's been a lot of you know discussions about what's the business model. And 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 I think what the pandemic has done is really accelerated a lot of that development and that transformation, and allowed a lot of artists, companies, festivals to test. And learn different methods and different technology, but also fundamentally, what's the model behind it? Is is it a free stream? Is it gated, ungated? It It's raised a whole, co- you know, all kinds of uh, very interesting questions. And today we're we're in a situation where, well, you know, it's opening up again. What will you know will continue? What's the model? What's the technology that will continue going forward? And I think uh, that's the interesting question. And, and I think what I found personally is, streaming. It's a very generic word, and and for me, you know, a commercial stream only applies to maybe 5 10% of the artists. I mean, because, you know, you need, first and foremost, artists that have an engaged digital community that is regularly fed content, and those, there aren't that many. I mean, it, it's the BTSs, it's the Taylor Swift, Dua Lipa, all these uh, artists who are digitally native, that know how to, how, how to do that, and who then can come in and offer an incremental uh, stream, which that community will then pay for. And I think that context, streaming is, is very successful. However, for 90% of the others, I think streaming is all about reach. It's about getting that music to as many people as possible. And it's not really sort of a, a commercial proposition. And when I say streaming, I'm talking audio, video, you know, uh, uh, transactional. I'm not necessarily talking about the SVOD or, or the, uh, you know, the Spotify's or those types of platforms. So I think it's very interesting to see how, how this will all develop. And because today, a lot of artists are becoming their own media and taking control of that. Interestingly you know, in a few years' time we'll we'll, hope we'll realize that actually the, the, the pandemic will have accelerated a lot of that, not only the technology, but the mindset and the culture. Of, of how we, we address the stuff going forward.
1: So can we talk a bit more about what the nature of that disruption looks like? Because what I found absolutely fascinating from that first conversation we had a few weeks ago was that you were originally brought in quite some time before the pandemic to look at how the festival could firstly move away to a certain extent from having a big dependency just on the annual event. Uh, and then secondly, to look at that diversification um, of the festival as, as well. And it's. There's lots of lessons for um, other organisations to, to learn from that. So, can you tell us a bit more of, uh, about that process of of the moving away from the annual event and the diversification?
0: Absolutely. I think. Um... I was on the advisory board for the festival for for, for many, many years before that. And looking at the festival when I was in that position, very quickly realized that with all the transformation that was happening in media, in the digital space, in music, we had to find ways of transforming the festival and adapting it to this new sort of technology that was coming around. Because up to then, and and this is true for a festival or any type of event, you're basically an event and hospitality business. You know, with your revenue concentrated on that, for us, on those two weeks, We did not exist before. We did not exist after. We were full on for two weeks. And therefore, that was a huge risk, a financial risk and a notoriety risk. Therefore, we had to find a way of mitigating that risk by annualizing the business so that we could exist both commercially, but also from a notoriety perspective all year round and on top of that we had to move away from the on top of the traditional commercial revenue streams which were for a festival which are ticketing sponsorship and some food and beverage we had to find ways of diversifying that and that was really the challenge for us it's annualization diversification and because the festival was 55 or at the time it was like 52 years old it's a foundation we didn't think it was probably the best vehicle to lead this transformation so we, we created a separate company called Montramedia media ventures and this is when i I joined Monterey Media Ventures as a founder, but also as a CEO. And um, and Monterey Media Ventures was founded to really accompany the festival in this transformation to annualize and diversify. We founded Monterey Media Ventures in uh, early 2019. So, you know, maybe a year and a half before the whole pandemic. And we started implementing some of these changes, which were primarily in order to exist all year round to, to annualize oneself, we had to embrace digital. And that meant content creation that meant being able to optimize our digital channels but also create content that would be deployed across those channels in order to engage with the audience not only during the festival but all year round and at the same time we saw that our partners and our sponsors were also looking for this because sponsors no longer are buying in just into banner ads and logo presence they also wanted a more meaningful engagement with the events and they were, they were partnering with. So they were also looking for, for content for their digital channels. And here we get into whole branded entertainment side of things. So creating this content for ourselves, giving it a, a real editorial line to it, and then doing it for our partners as well. And on top of that, we saw that artists were also looking for this. So we really sort of focused our attention on this content creation element of the business. So we, Entremedia Ventures has become sort of a content creative agency. And it was also trying to give the festival a new point of view and uh, and to be a lot more relevant to today's audiences because it it may say jazz in the title. Uh, Our audience is is actually very young. There's about 300,000 people that come to the event every year. 70% of them are under the age of 30. So we had to find a way of engaging with that audience. And they were all digital native, mobile native. So we had to do it in in a cool and interesting way. And, um, And that meant, you know, creating the structure, changing the mindset, trying to get the culture to shift a bit. And it was through digital and mobile content. That also meant we had to look at how did that audience consume content? We took an audience first approach. We looked at how our aspirational audience wanted to engage with the music content. We saw that this was primarily through streaming, YouTube being a big component of that. It was multi-screen. And that had a direct incidence of how we filmed all the concerts at the festival, because the festival is probably one of the first festivals that started filming a lot of its content. And today it's constituted some archives that are listed on, on UNESCO's Memories of the World. We've got, I think, 15,000 hours of concerts as part of those archives. Audiovisual has been in the culture of the festival for a long time, but looking at today and the way it's being filmed, we had to move away from that traditional way of filming concerts for television or for archival purposes and, and shooting it for mobile and, and and digital, which meant changing the whole technical setup. So that had cost, you know, different cameras, younger directors, different cameramen, and that led to a whole sort of transformation on, on the technical side of things as well. And then the last thing is we realized that people were not, necessarily watching full concerts music content was being watched you know, in 10-15 minute bits and people were more interested in behind the scenes lifestyle interviews and things like so we, we took all that into account and really started sort of shifting the the editorial output of what we were producing for the festival and we started doing that in 2019 and we were ready to do that in 2020 and then suddenly the whole sort of covid situation hit and hopefully this year we'll, we'll be fully ready to, to kind of really deploy this to its max and I think that was kind of the big shift for us. It, it was like looking at the festival as a means of creating content that could engage with our audience in a meaningful way all year round. On the diversification side, yes, we created this agency business for, for brands. You know, we, we worked for uh, our, our sponsors, but also others but also looking at how could we revitalize these archives I just mentioned, you know, 15,000 hours of archives which have been released over the years, but we wanted to find ways of revitalizing that and, and releasing them in a new, fun, modern way. And that meant, and which we, we started doing now with uh, we've launched this whole sort of audio collection called the Years, which is coming up with uh, live performances of Nina Simone, Etta James, but we're going to be releasing six to eight of these uh, going forward uh, per year. Uh, that's one way of doing that, we're producing a, a, a documentary series on the history of the festival and really looking at you know, other ways of monetizing the content that is outside of the traditional means and, and becoming to some degree sort of a media company and that's really kind of the the, the one of the shifts we're, we're trying to do the festival will be central and will be key to to everything we do but for us it's all breaking down the festival in, in to, to to its essence which is effectively a brand an audience and its content and how do we deploy that across our lines of businesses, whilst anchoring it in the legacy, which is 55 years of history, and projecting ourselves onto a new audience and being more relevant and cooler and hipper to that audience. And and we've done that through this platform we've created called MGF Spotlight, which is sort of a, we just recently launched it. We want this to be the digital destination for young emerging artists. So we're working on both anchoring the past, but also projecting ourselves in the future and today's festival, the lineup that we just announced, is very much about young emerging artists. So we've got everything from Arlo Parks to Inhaler, whilst having sort of big names from like uh, Rag and Bone Man. So it's really playing on both facets. So it's not only an event business anymore. It's really being you know, deployed across multiple facet and lines of businesses.
2: I'm clearly massively down with it because Inhaler just came up on my um, Spotify as a, an associated <laughs> artist to something else I was listening to, so I, I feel really pleased that I've just. There you um, go. There you go. They're on stage at the festival. I, I really love that point about because this sounds hugely sophisticated for a, an organisation that's steeped in history. I imagine that the the history probably brings with it a little bit of organisational lethargy, perhaps up until that point. Do you do you see this as something that sort of in injecting a much needed sophistication into something that feels a little bit lethargic or was it always moving towards this point?
0: Well, the forward thinking was always kind of there because the founder himself was, was always with all the new technology. He was one of the first people in Europe to introduce HD filming. So it was always part of the DNA. I, th- I think the big change here is, is a cultural shift where you're going from, from an events business where you've got people working to deliver that event Mm. but it's not an all-year business so they may be working to deliver that event but you know on on the monday following the end of the event they're on on a three-month holiday that's really the shift where the focus is really, okay, you, not only do you have to deliver that event, but we've got to do everything else. Yeah. And I think that's kind of been the biggest challenge and, and getting people to think from a digital mindset and going back to what I was saying about you know, the main assets are your brand, your content, and, and your audience and thinking in those terms where the event is only one element whilst there are other lines of business. And that's been the most challenging. The most challenging, it's really being the shift in culture and it's a very small team so so i think uh, that's you know a small team for the amount of work I was going to say, small t- small but hard-working yeah, team. Exactly.
2: And and so a very recent example of where at least some of this might have been seen is with the the recent Glastonbury experience. So uh, it was only two weekends ago, wasn't it, I think, where yeah. they put on this, this show, which, again, was sort of pre-filmed. Nobody really played over about half an hour, so 20, 25 minutes of each artist interspersed with other bits and pieces. That's the good side because there was the, the the brilliant, I thought it was really good. It was really well done. It was and amazing, yeah. It, 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 it was a good evening's entertainment. However, I guess there was a point that we should address here that is that part of the reason that they did that was because there's a huge gap, or there has been a huge gap in the last two years for that festival in terms of of revenue. And this was meant to at least fill some of that hole. But when the whole thing fell over and all those people that had bought tickets, I think uh, £20 a, a, a ticket, being offered refunds which obviously some of them will take and I don't know what the numbers are there I'm sure Emily Evis will come out and tell us because she's very honest about all these things but I tuned in because suddenly it was open and it was free rather than paying the 20 the 20 pounds so how has their experience changed the way or, or altered the way that you might look at what you're doing with the festival and do you see it as sort of being a challenge or is this different is this different because you are going to have people there it's a filming and a recording of a live event rather than something
0: that's sort of set up as a set piece we've adopted a completely different model to Glastonbury where obviously there's a physical event with people Mm -hmm. in an audience and we're going to film this as we do every year the difference is we're going to stream this but it's going to be a free open gated stream um, that's going to be time shifted around the world, so that's the major difference. Where if you want to tune in, all you do have to go is on the Quello.com website or on their app, and you'll you'll have straight access to to that live stream, and it's going to be free of charge. You don't have to register an email or, or any of that. So, if people can't come to the festival this year, we'll bring the festival to the world, and that was really the mindset that we were in. I think that's what motivated us initially to, to adopt this model. Every festival will probably have a different approach, I think, uh, but what's important, I think generally speaking for festivals and any event, and this is more from a business perspective, is, is you have to exist and whatever you can do to exist is important beyond the number of streams, beyond the just, you know, oh, the views and all of that. It's important to demonstrate to your audience, to your partners, to your staff, to your whole community that you're fighting and you exist, and, and I think uh, we we've been able to do that uh, with the Montreal Jazz Festival because last year we streamed 16 of our archival concerts on YouTube, which allowed us to exist. The streams were were okay; it was it wasn't great, but we were there, we were present, we were we were offering something, and it was very important to our viewers. It was important to uh, to our partners and our sponsors, and and being able to provide that allowed us to kind of retain that sponsorship revenue into this year and I think I think that's the most important I, th- I think I think to some degree I think what's that it's also you know the value of what Glastonbury have done is, is is demonstrate to their ecosystem that they're able to 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 continue to exist.
1: Yeah definitely and what strikes me is you were talking it's about having the right person to lead that kind of Transformational digital disruption. And the reason why I wanted to explore this issue a bit more is that, as you know, on a previous edition of the podcast, we had privilege of interviewing Stuart Murphy, who's CEO of English National Opera. And what really struck me about uh, Stuart's experience and your experience as well is that both of you have this incredible experience in uh, working in, in digital previously and that wider understanding of the media and how it's had to really change even a long time before the pandemic so I think what is a really interesting thing to explore is about how do organizations who perhaps may be nearer the start of that digital journey go about finding a CEO who's got that really really good experience with digital because if you make the wrong hire then it goes horribly wrong doesn't it so do you have any advice for for boards out there about how they can bring in the right leader
0: I think look I think you need people that that are not scared of change and transformation and disruption because with transformation comes insecurity and the change of culture and that's the thing you must not underestimate you can change the business model and that's the easiest thing to do you can change uh the way you conduct business but the most difficult change is the culture and you've got people that are probably were very well suited for one business as you're transforming it to the 2.0 version may follow you in that transformation journey, but may not be at the same same speed or at the same pace as you are. And being able to accompany these people across that transformation is the biggest asset for for any kind of CEO. And I think that's a soft uh, skill that is extremely necessary that um, companies should be looking for. Um, over and above the, 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 the specific skill sets, uh, digital and media skill sets, or all those skill sets, I, I think it's really the uh, the ability to lead that transformation in a way that is uh, that is um, efficient and allows people to, to to accompany that 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 journey and not drop out along the way. People will drop out along the way; that that's undeniable because for whatever reason. But you want to accompany as many people with you on that journey, and I think that's the biggest asset. So. These types of people, personalities, you can find probably in, in many in many professions, many industries. And I think that's a key asset that any any company should be looking for if they're going to embark in this type of uh, journey.
2: The way you've sort of painted your journey and the, the story around the festival here is one of, for me at least, excitement. Whereas a lot of digital transformation is sort of steeped in, you know, we need to make this change for survival. You're talking about a, a sort of a new, exciting uh, world. Have you... Like Stuart though there's some resistance I think he faced some resistance particularly because he'd come from the the, the television world and it was what does this guy know about opera you know here he yeah. is and he's going to change things so uh, have you have you sort of noticed any resistance and how do you excite the people around you to to sort of come on this journey or is it just we're going to do this with the Montreal Jazz Festival, and that's enough, that's invitation
0: enough to jump uh, on board. Th- there was clearly some resistance, especially, you know, th- there's often a disconnect with the board and the operational side of the company where, where, where you, you need really a board to be behind you because that impetus has got to come from the top. If it's not there, however good the, the person comes in, it's not never going to achieve anything so the first and foremost you you need is the endorsement of the board or you know that the chairman or whoever that this is necessary and and for us um you know you may you know, i may talk this with talk about this with a lot of excitement it was also there was a survival element to it you know because i think midterm long term the model was in danger we had to future proof it so so it was about it embracing these new this new technology and leading that change, and yes, resistance there was, and you know there will always be. And either either you, you push through it and and demonstrate and the proof is in the pudding. So it's demonstrate that it's actually working. And for us, actually, it was the pandemic. Weirdly, um, it was the pandemic. With with a lot of people who who had shown some resistance before or some hesitancy or or doubt, suddenly saw that through the pandemic, we was, we started to deliver digital campaigns, you know, activation, activating a, a virtual festival. And not only that, we were generating some revenue. We were showing some some positive signs and results. And suddenly that allowed us to prove that, that this is actually the way forward and this is the model. And 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 this is why, in a very bizarre way, the last 18 months have been transformational for, for us, because it, it's actually accelerated this transformation and pushed aside any form of resistance that we may have had before this would have taken much longer had it not been for the pandemic i think with change comes you're not going to please everybody not not everybody's going to come on your journey
1: that's been fantastic nick thank you so much we've loved hearing about this incredible creative approach that you've been working on for some time well, thank you. But really come to fruition over the the last year and we're so excited to see what happens with the, the festival this year your plans sound amazing so we will certainly be <laughs> tuning in won't we Paul
2: I was gonna say definitely tuning in definitely good to see how it's all going I obviously will be watching out for my favorite band my new favorite band uh, on, on the stage but it's all really good and I think there's also you know so much to delve into around the music industry in particular I mean that the, we've skirted around the the discussion about Spotify as well and, mm. and the the ongoing sort of battle for um, streaming monies and where it comes from or where it doesn't but also the massive opportunity for those musicians who do want to to try and sort of diversify into new areas to do so Mm -hmm. and I think it's probably been an awakening for some some musicians but thank you very much for your time it's been yeah thank you thank you guys
1: hey thank you thank you
2: So we covered a lot of ground in that interview with Nick. I think the three main points around digital disruption, shifting consumer behaviour and diversification are similar to points we discussed with Stuart last time out. I think it's a fascinating approach to diversifying a product that has historically been a one off event in the middle of summer. And particularly how artists are also looking at new ways to interact and sell directly to fans as 70 to 80 percent of their revenue has been cut off through lack of touring.
1: Definitely. It's a really fascinating insight into how uh, an annual event uh, needs to change. And I think there were a lot of things in that interview that will be really useful for anyone who uh, is looking to diversify away from a potential single point of failure and also to build a strong community of, of young people as well. It was
2: a fantastic approach and I'm really looking forward to, um, to joining some of the sessions at the festival itself.
1: Can't wait. We can do some joint listening if you want
2: Listening parties, yes. excellent. And I think, I don't know, I think I'm right in saying that the BBC are doing Glastonbury or doing some a lot of stuff on Glastonbury this weekend, which is always uh, great when they revisit and let you revisit some of the sets through iPlayer, so that will be interesting. And I think the slightly contentious failed um, experiment into streaming Glastonbury 2021, I think, is also uh, been picked up by the BBC and is being shown, if not this weekend, then very soon. The full festival experience from your living room. So thank you very much for listening to episode eight of season three. We'll be back next week with another episode, the final one of the series.
1: Oh, yes, season finale, an author special. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas, or questions with us on Twitter. We're at starts at the top one, or you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com.
2: And thank you very much for listening.
1: Thank you. We'll see you next time.